My name is Phil Duffy. I'm the uh, Chief Product Officer at Embodied Inc. I'm Sudhir Reddy, Head of Engineering at Esper, as well as the host of this show. There's a device for that. Today, I'm going to talk to Phil Duffy from Embodied Inc. And they are in a wonderful world of creating robots that really help children in need, as well as adults, it turns out. And their robot is fascinating. I feel like I want to get one myself. So let's listen to what Phil has to say. You know, before we started, I wanted to say, Phil, I am a huge robotics fan. Did Alex tell you about this? No, no, they never mentioned it. That's good to hear them. So what my, about robotics interests you? My graduate uh, program, my, I was actually a major in robotics and a minor in computer science. And no way, I didn't know that. This was back in the late, mid-90s. This was 96. Right. And my mm-hmm. first job out of there was actually, uh, I built robots for, it was then called SVG lithography. Now it's called ASML. Wow. Uh, do you know about uh, wafer handling at all, reticle and wafer handling? I do, I do. I know, yeah. Yeah, I've got some friends in that space, actually. And I I lived in China uh, doing SMT um, uh, technology out there for a while. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, back then, it was, I think, uh, 15 wow. nanometer uh, reticles. I, I built a couple of robots that actually did 15 nanometer reticle handling. That's insane. So, wow. I yeah. mean, precision of that stuff's insane. It's insane. Now it's down to like four nanometers. Like literally, wow! You breathe on it and it'll break that thin. Um, and you were doing all visual recognition on that? Uh, no, I was actually programming the entire. You know, uh, you know about the reticle and wafers, right? Reticles like the negative it, on the right when you're making. But it was all set piece, right? The robotic side of it that was was yeah. all set piece. You were all it was all precision based. You were right. right, right, okay. So, so you weren't the, making adjustments based on visual input. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, it was all handling and adjusting those reticles and wafers so they're exactly aligned, so they imprint. It was fascinating. Ah. And then, you know, I was on a immigrant visa back then. I was on a mm-hmm. F1 student and then an H1. And all the done cool that, jobs done, back done then. Yeah. All the cool jobs back then in robotics were in uh, defense. All the stuff I wanted to do right, at right, least. Right. Yeah. Right. right, right, right. Uh, robotics has come. So I couldn't, I couldn't go to any of those. No. So. We can't. No, I I, I did the same. Uh, they they're not going to let us in with uh, with our backgrounds. Yeah, yeah. So I had to jump to the dark side, software. So <laughs> right. here I am. Here I am. That's my super story. interesting, man. Yeah, yeah. And you have a fascinating background too. You've been in the robotic space for quite a while, right? Quite a while, yeah. I mean, uh, in the early consumer days, uh, I was doing robotics. Um, you know, I my undergrad was in mech eng manufacturing engineering and industrial design and so uh i grew up in the uk in the the, the hometown where industrial revolution first came from right you know it's big manufacturing 300 years of manufacturing and then obviously as it goes to my generation that that passed away and you know the last of the big automotive engineering uh, groups kind of faded so i went to kind of the next biggest place for manufacturing china lived there for 16 years and got bit by the robotics bug early. You know, I wanted to do something. I got sick of designing products that ended up being just landfill. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do something that was more interesting and had more capabilities. And and for me, there was only two real promises from the last century that we hadn't fulfilled, flying cars and robots. Those are the two. 
And flying cars are never going to happen. And so I figured that robotics was the place to go. And I got bit by the robotics bug. I got into early consumer stuff, mostly in that kind of, um, you know, entertainment space. Ibo came out with, uh, with Sony and that was a huge thing. And we, everyone else started looking at those spaces. So I ended up building a lot of robots and then eventually went from consumer stuff into commercial robots being doing large self-driving thousand pound machines that were, you know, driving around doing like real work. Uh, and BrainCorp, you know, when I left there, today they've got about 30,000 commercial robots operating daily. And that is the largest robotics fleets operating public spaces anywhere in the world, which is, you know, really exciting stuff. There, there was lots of companies doing robots in warehouses and robots in factories where it's all in a secured area and it's paired off and you haven't got people, you know, moving around. But the stuff I built at, at BrainCorp was robots operating in places open to the public in, in you know uh, airports in in malls in shopping centers in hospitals you know people interacting people walking around and walking their dogs and you know children running around so the level of safety and the concern completely different to uh, the kind of things you get in in warehouses and, and factories that's awesome to hear so phil tell us a little bit about you what do you do uh, what company are you with what's your background Embodied is one of the the first real social robots that's able to to help children with social emotional difficulties. So it's a a language-based robotic system. It's conversational AI that helps children work through a whole slew of different issues and takes them through a journey of social emotional learning to really help their progression in life. Yeah, thank you for that. I was actually looking up your website and the robot that you have, Moxie, is uh, super fascinating. I wish I was between five and 10, who that is aimed at. Before we go into talking about Embodied Inc. and Moxie a little bit more, first, other I know that you love robots. Other than robots, what's your favorite gadget out there? Other than robots, what's my favorite gadget? Um, interesting question. I mean, we couldn't live without our cell phones today, but it's a boring answer. Everybody's, you know, involved in that. I think there's so many gadgets that are out these days that we forget that they're gadgets. You know, Zoom and the fact that we're talking remotely, it was available before people had Skype, but they weren't using it the way we use it today. It wasn't like an intimate part of life that everybody's using. So I think for someone that's lived in multiple countries, I like the ability to connect to people. So I think this, the system we're on today, Zoom, the ability to communicate with your phone, the ability to, to make a, a Facebook call from the top of a mountain with your family in a different country. Those are the kind of technologies that I think are really interesting. Yeah, that's a very interesting answer because we were just on another podcast recording recently and one of our guests actually said, hey, my standing desk is my favorite gadget right now because I can, we don't think of it as a gadget, but it is something that I use every day and I'm fascinated by it. So that's cool. I find one of the most interesting parts of, again, coming from a product background, it's always interesting developing designing um, technology products. But for me, I like the adoption of technology products. So, you know, you get something as mundane as the dishwasher. It's been around for multiple years. It was actually designed fairly early in the uh, in the last century. But what I find really interesting is that, that everyone's got a, a dishwasher day in their home. It's a standard thing in in the U.S. But the adoption of the dishwasher is one of the longest technology adoptions of any product ever. And so when you look at it and you go back and say when it was invented and why it wasn't selling in and, and it was such a slow ramp up, the reason 
the catalyst for, for the adoption of the, of the dishwasher was the fact that builders started building a space in the kitchen for a dishwasher to sit in. Before then, there was no there was no space. So I think I'm really interested in technology and products that are able to adapt to the legacy world that we have around us. It's all well and good designing something that needs a whole new approach, but it doesn't get adopted as easily. You know, it's really hard to adopt technologies into to spaces where there's there's already design constraints created by, you know, humans. Yeah, absolutely. Very fascinating. On the same vein, what are you really looking forward to in terms of technolo- the technology space and its adoption in the next, let's say, five, 10 years? What makes you excited? So obviously it's going to be robotics. That's the place I'm, I'm you know, really interested in, the space I'm, I'm involved in. I'll be honest that I'm a little annoyed with my own age. I, I'm annoyed by the fact that we're going to see big things in robotics in the next five years. We're going to see bigger things in 10 years. And just when robotics really kicks off, they're going to be farming me out to retire. And that annoys me every single day. But I think the short term, what we're going to see is this evolution of a, a ubiquitous hardware platform. Um, today doesn't exist. And if we look back at the computer industry and the phone industry and all those things, there was lots of people working on different versions, but it didn't really kick off and become a scalable uh, technology until people started to work on ubiquitous hardware platforms. And then the software side came in and we could start developing and many people could develop for this, this system. A cell phone is a fairly easy thing to design for because there's only a certain mem- amount of inputs and outputs. So you can design around a ubiquitous platform fairly easily. It's much harder with a robot when we don't know what it needs to do. It needs to have inputs and outputs for wheels or legs or, you know, the ability to change height or a neck or arms or whatever those different elements are. And so it's quite difficult to design a ubiquitous hardware platform for that. But we know there's companies working on that and they're working on separated systems that that can, you know, address the firmware and keep it separate from, you know, the overall software stack. So I think in the next five years, we're going to start to see different types of companies emerge. Today, every robot company on the planet does one thing, and they do it really well. You've got companies that do navigation. You've got companies that do manipulation and you know ability to grasp things with hands. You have companies like Embodied that has communication and interaction as their, their primary skill. Uh, other companies do locomotion. Other companies do perception. They can see the world and understand the world and, and what's in the world. Those companies aren't working together today because the technology is too complex, the price is too high, and they're not working on a, you know, a, like I say, a ubiquitous uh, hardware stack. In the next five years, we're going to start to see companies come together. We're going to see robots that come to market that's going to have, and I'm using examples here, BrainCorp for navigation, Boston Dynamics for locomotion, Ready Robotics for manipulation, Embodied for communication. And we're going to see these multi-stack robots coming. I'm super excited about that. And then I'm super excited to see that evolve over the next 10 years, where we're going to see improvements in perception, improvements in communication. I mean, all of the the large language model stuff that's coming out now is changing the world. We're starting to see in the last two to three years, the evolution in AI and language capabilities that we haven't seen since Moore's law and the ability to bring memory to, to market. You know, the idea that you are going to have memory chips that were twice the size and half the cost and every year it's improving. We're starting to see that in the language model space as well. So exciting stuff coming. 
Awesome. That's uh, that's awesome to hear. And I completely agree with how fast innovation is happening happening in that space. As we were talking about, I was in my graduate school educated on robotics and things. And back then, that was the exclusive domain of either research or defense. And now the adoption of it in uh, mainstream day-to-day life has become so much more that when you talk about robots, even kids know what, and in your case, all the kids know exactly what the, we're talking about. Right. I mean, yeah. Dean Kamen is a brilliant, brilliant inventor. He's done everything from the Segway to, you know, heart pumps, uh, you know, in the medical space. He invented and brought together first robotics, um, which is the Lego-based system. And now it's got to the point where every high school has a first robotics team. Every university's, you know, taking t- kids from those teams. Every middle school has a, a first robotics team. It's even getting into elementary school. So kids are coming up and their first experience throughout the school system of engineering and technology is robotics. And that's crazy. That didn't exist before. You've got all these dads and parents and moms that are involved taking these kids to these tournaments, helping them on the coaching. And so this concept of robotics is expanding. And we're going to get generations go to university and their first thought about engineering is going to be a systems approach. It's going to be mechanical, electrical, software. You're not going to be, have uh, students just, entering with a purely mechanical curriculum or a purely software curriculum. And so that change in society from kids all the way through to universities and the way, you know, technology is taught, that's going to fuel the future of robotics without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. As the chief product officer of the company and as a person who's been in the product line for a long time, what is the one thing as you're innovating and uh, your pace of innovation in robotics is so high, what, what do you hold dear? What's one saying or what do you tell your team that you hold dear that uh, you'd like the listener of this show to also absorb? I mean, I'm not going to say anything revolutionary. It's the, you know, the, the core uh, focus of every product manager on the planet, and it's about voice of customer impact. Um, you know, in the world of Embodied, we're dealing with a different customer and a different user. We're, we're designing for a, a child, you know, four years old to, to 10 years old. Uh, we're selling to, a, you know, a parent or a, a guardian or, a, you know, a school or, a, you know, a, a clinic. Um, and so understanding the needs of the actual users and understanding the needs of the customers and the channel, super important. And then relaying that back to obviously developments. That's, that's the key there. It's really interesting because at Embodied, we are dealing with a breakthrough technology and we're dealing with potentially one of the hardest markets to sell into. We're all voice-based. So our, our communication system requires a child to speak to us. We need to be able to understand that child. We need to be able to understand, you know, not just the words they're saying, but the intent of those words, and the intent of the conversation, and then, you know, reply appropriately and take the conversation along the, the correct path. You've got kids with, obviously, kid speech. They don't have great pronunciation when they're younger. And they may not be able to form full sentences. They may not, they, their vocab may be limited. And about 78% of embodied's market today is either diagnosed or suspected, uh, has some kind of diagnosed or suspected mental behavioral developmental disorder. And so whether it's, you know, autism or ADHD or, you know, oppositional defiance disorder, there are kids with issues and that that's really hard for them to communicate. And so we've picked a very challenging space to launch this technology in, but we've also picked a space that's really important, right? You know, the, the work we're doing is really helping these kids. And so it's really about understanding the difficulty these children have, addressing that hopefully with technology 
and understanding the issues that parents are having or the guardians are having with these kids and helping LA their fears and delivering something that's that's actually valuable. Um, so it's it's still, you know, it's product. It's all about the voice of the customer. Yeah. And I keep using that phrase too. It's what outcome do you want to drive with your customers or what problem for the customers are you trying to solve for them? You have to keep your eye on that. Which your answer leads me to what does Moxie and what does it do and how does it work with, with kids? So Moxie is a, a robot that, that like, as we said, interacts with children. It takes them on this journey of social emotional learning and it's all voice based. So we have a physical body with arms and a head that's it's highly articulated and an animated face. Moxie has been designed so it doesn't look like a screen. It's got a round face on it. You know, it's projected rather than an LCD screen. And the reason we did this is uh, so that we can get kids away from that spending time in front of a screen. We've developed a really comprehensive system that allows Moxie to animate physically and you know graphically in response to the character. So kids actually believe that Moxie is real. You know, we're trying to create a character that has some substance, has agency. And even adults, when, when adults start interacting with Moxie, it's very easy to get pulled in and talk to Moxie as, as, as a person. Uh, behind all of that, we have our proprietary technology stack called Social X. Social X combines everything from understanding where the child's eye gaze is at all times and making sure that we're looking at the eyes, listening and understanding, you know, the words, but also the intent of where that conversation is going. And then being able to present the child with a whole, you know, slew of options. So whether it's a conversation that, that we're talking about, what the child experienced at school today, you know, how, th- how things were, what, what they like the most about the zoo, or whether it's a deeper conversation that gets into exploring emotions and, not, you know, taking them on a, a journey of understanding, you know, what they know about emotions, how they can really, you know, recognize emotions in themselves, how they can recognize certain emotions in other people, giving them a number of different techniques uh, to be able to handle those situations. So we teach a lot of emotional regulation, breathing exercises. We teach a lot, a lot of uh, social interaction exercises, things that we plan out and we explore and we apply in a virtual space with Moxie and the child. But then we send them out to do missions. Go into your home and try this, that, and the other, and report back. Go to school and speak to your friends and try this, that, and the other, and report back. And so we take them through this whole uh, journey of uh, social emotional learning where we're really trying to help children with their growth. And it's all based on this conversational AI technology. That's amazing. So would you say, I, I just made a note here of, you talked about complexities in robotics, in voice recognition, in AI, in behavioral aspects of kids and all of that. What would you say is the most complex piece of technology you needed to invent as part of creating Moxie? Our approach is we take both visual and audio information in, right? So, you know, it's a multimodal approach and it's with children, there isn't a large database. You know, if you go out into the world of adults, there's a huge databases out for voice recognition. There's huge databases out for, you know, some facial recognitions. We've had to build a lot of that ourselves for it to work well with these, these groups. We're also bound by a data protection laws. So we meet all of the, the COPA compliance laws for the U.S. Uh, in terms of how we handle data. We're governed by a third-party company that we actually hired to manage us to make sure we meet those standards. And so it's a combination of providing technology that keeps the child safe, keeps that data safe, but also is able to pull in enough information to, for us to be able to reply to. And we look at the digital world. And the digital world has a huge amounts of data, but it's all very, very clean data, as you know. It's all, you know, binary, it's all ones and zeros. 
in the world of robotics, we've got cameras that are taking information in, but if the room is dark or the child is partially occluded and you can't see them properly, or there's a smudge on the lens, or in the you know in terms of audio, if the if the robot's too close to a, a corner of a wall and the audio is bouncing from the corners, or the dogs barking in the background, the TV's on. The data we get in is very messy and dirty data, so we have to do a lot of cleanup to understand what's happening, and that'll and and before we can reply. So I think the most challenging element in the real world of robotics, especially when you're doing kids, is being able to reply and work in the real world, which is, it's interesting, right? You, you know, in the world of products, you used to be able to design these products in a laboratory or a factory or wherever it was and launch it to market when it was fully working. Or you can deliver a software app where you know the hardware on your phone is perfect and we can keep updating the software. But in the world of robotics, you actually don't know how these sensor systems are going to see the world until they're in the world. If you're doing self-driving, you don't know how... The cameras or the, you know, the LIDARs or the, you know, the time of flight visual recognizers are going to see the reflections from uh, a railing in an airport just as the sun is rising. You don't know how they're going to see the reflections on a puddle in the floor. Working with kids, you don't know how they're going to, the, the systems are going to react to a family having a conversation, you know, in the next room or how it's going to work when the kids got multiple friends over on their birthday until you get into these scenarios. So, you know, the world of robotics requires a different approach to development, and it all comes down to dirty data. Fascinating. It's a, it's, I never even imagined how many problems you'd have to solve with having to come up with a robot that can do all the things that you just described. Because in my world, in the devices and software world, you're right. We know right. exactly what that hardware is going to do. We know exactly when we can update that hardware and when we can update software right. on it. The complexity of bringing all that together, analyzing it, and then responding to the child in a way that makes sense to them. That's, that's just amazing, amazing stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, our approach is slightly different because we, we, we obviously design towards our, our use cases that we, we, we've identified. And then we're continuously running beta tests in the market all the time, identifying edge cases, solving an edge case, stitching, stitching a slew of edge cases together, and, uh, you know, more and more and more until we get to product that reaches baseline functionality. But that's really the approach. Great. Now, uh, obviously, any technology is only as good as the outcome that it drives. So what are your kids experiencing, the kids that are adopting Moxie? And, and how are you measuring as a product uh, person? You're pro obviously measuring the outcomes that you're driving. What are some of the key things that you measure there? And what are some of the key things that your users are reporting that they're seeing benefits from? Absolutely. Great question. I mean, because we're in this uh, space of, of helping children with, with you know, social emotional issues, we want to make sure that we're not drinking the Kool-Aid. Um, and so we run a number of uh, clinical trials that's all managed by independent research board and IRB to make sure that we're meeting human testing standards. Um, and we run several different systems there. So we often run a social responsiveness scale a system where we're working with either uh, psychologists or working with parents to measure a baseline level of uh, interaction before we get involved in the child. And then we'll go through months of, uh, you know, working with the child and measuring that afterwards. We also look at uh, social skills improvement systems. And we've run a number of studies in the past uh, to look at improvements. And in general, 
we have a very strong around 70% improvements in both social skills and behavior. But then we've got it all broken down into a number of different other areas. We see improvements in emotional regulation, self-esteem, you know, uh, conversation skills. We see five times more eye contacts after moxie interventions in some of our children that have autism, 28% increase in term balance. There's lots of different elements here. And we're about to engage in another major study in the next few months. We're, we're going out and doing a study with 400 users this year, and it will be measured at the you know, clinical uh, level. And so it's really important to us that we're driving value for the user. We're able to communicate that value to parents, um, but we're making a difference. And anecdotally, it's incredible. Anecdotally, you know, we get messages from parents that have children maybe on the on the spectrum that have never had that child express emotions to them or never express kind of uh, any kind of uh, positive emotions. And then they, they write to us in tears because the child gave them a hug or left them a note saying, I love you or told them that they love them. Stuff that's really challenging from that child. We had one parent that couldn't believe how much of a change you make where the child was able to look them in the eyes and never looked them in the eye before. Imagine being a parent where you're connected with your child and that child's been around a number of years and you're doing everything you can to to help them progress in the world. And one little thing like that happens and it's all because this little green kind of blue robot got involved. We see connections between Moxie and children that can be far greater than some of the connections between children and therapists. And and it's because the you know, Moxie's small, it is communicative, it's not threatening. At, at no point does it evaluate the child or at no point does it, it put any pressure on the child. And so these relationships are really building with Moxie and it's doing phenomenal, like, you know, work helping parents. Oh, you literally just gave me goosebumps as you were describing some of those stories that that uh, parents and children experience. What does the future hold for Embodied? What are the next set of things that you're looking to explore? You talked about the clinical trials. Oh, by the way, I should mention that us at Esper, which enable a lot of devices similar to Embodies and Embodied and things are deeply into the clinical trial space as well. We have several customers who use us to deploy their devices and things. But coming back to the question, yeah, what does the future hold in the near term for Embodied and Moxie? So we, we've got a really exp- expanded our, our system uh, internally. Um, previously, a year ago, you know, we've been in the market about 18 months, just over 18 months now, and about 90% of the content that we had on Moxie was authored. 10% was generated. We're now, with our new system, we're approximately 50% that is generated AI, 50% that's pre-authored, and those two are, you know, closing the gaps, and we're taking a lot more of that generative AI, moving it into the author content. So that's a big difference. It means that Moxie can adapt a lot easier to conversations. You know, in the authored content, you know, we would structure it all out. It would be scaffolded. So depending on how the child responds, we would go down certain pathways. But there's still kind of a, a complex thing where, you know, if the child goes off topic, it can be challenging to get the child back and, you know, continue the conversation. With the generative approach, we're able to handle a much more, uh, you know, wider array of conversations and still guide them along this path of curriculum. So that's super exciting. We're building or launching a brand new system that is based on having more personalization experience as well. It's launching... Um, any second, actually. And this this takes information in from the parent, from the child themselves, and so uh, provides a much more personalized experience. So everyone's going to get Moxie. It's all going to be the same on day one. 
But, you know, by day 30, you know, day 60, completely different robots, completely different experiences, completely different interactions, receiving different kinds of contents, uh, receiving in different ways. So much more reactive to the child's personality. Um, so that's a new thing that's coming for us. Really exciting. We're also working with a number of folks in the clinical and education fields uh, to, to launch uh, products to support them at the uh, commercial level. And that's not going to be uh, launched until, you know, towards the end of this year. It's really a 2024 kind of approach. But we get a lot of inbound interest from, you know, teachers, from schools, a lot from clinicians, pediatricians, therapists. And so we're, we're building systems to really help, um, you know, their space as well, which is really exciting for us. So, yeah, the, the, the more ways we can get Moxie to, into, into kids' hands to help, the, the better. Uh, we work with a number of libraries right now that are actually building out a fleet of moxies that they can, you know, lend out to to users. Um, so it's uh, that's the goal is whatever we can do to kind of help kids in, in these different areas. Fantastic. Thinking of that, it can't help but ask the question: the market today, the industry today, is going through a little bit of a turmoil in terms of startups not doing as well this year, the economy not doing as well this year. How is Embodied feeling that, or, or are, you, are you insulated from that a little bit? I don't think anyone's insulated. You know, we are a venture-backed company. We're still VC-funded. We were lucky that we actually secured funding at the end of last year, you know, we, as planned. We've got a phenomenal investor that we work with that really understands the market, understands the customers, and has a, a strong background in the clinical space. Um, so they're on board with the mission as much as they are with the company. That that helps us a lot. So in the first year to market, you know, really our goals were to test the product, you know, is this something that's going to scale? Is this something that's going to really help people? Is this something that can we not only get out there, but can we support? Can we sort of support it from a logistics perspective, from a customer support perspective? Can we get regular updates to the robot and, you know, increase the capabilities? We've gone through our 18 months of testing and work on that to get it to the point where it's able to up and scale. And 2023 is the year for scale. So we're going to be driving a lot more of these uh, products to market this year. Uh, we've got the funding to do that. And so we're expanding the team. So we're one of the few companies in that space that is able to, to take those steps. And we did that because, you know, we, we've kept an eye on the market. You know, the last year we knew the economy was going to be a challenge, took the steps necessary to really focus the products and, uh, you know, secure funding. And, you know, we're hoping this year is the year that we, uh, we really drive scale. Fantastic. All the very best to you on that. Thank you. How about the personal robotics space? Where do you see that evolving over the next few years? It's a really interesting question. It goes back a lot to that first concept, that conversation we had about, you know, uh, multiple uh, multi-stack robots coming to market. I do think personal robotics has had a hard time up until now. Partly that was technology barrier and, and cost involved. Partly, I think that is also to do with finding a valuable use case. There's a lot of robots out there today that are very functionally fantastic. They can do cool things, but they, they don't solve a need. And so with that, it's really hard to drive any kind of scale that, that's going to enable you to, to improve that, that system. I think social robots have been in that space for a while. And at Embodied, we really discovered a pain point. We said, you know, one in five children in the U.S. has some form of diagnosed mental behavior developmental disorder. And the actual number is much larger than that because many of them go undiagnosed. 
there is a mental health crisis happening in the US and across the world, and we're able to help with that. Now, we're not a replacement for therapy. We've never claimed to be that. That's not really our goal. Our goal is to help children that either can't get access to therapy or help and and be as an assistive therapy device. And so discovering a a, a pain point and one that's really important and one that the whole team at Embody can get behind as a mission-led company, I think that was the secret to, to where we are. That plus the fact that, again, we're getting to this point where uh, long, large language models are really, you know, increasing in scale, capabilities, you know, we're able to do a lot more processing offline and off board. Um, and so that's kind of where we are with this. I think it's a combination of, you know, the evolution of technology and discovering an, a need. Uh, so I think there's, there's a good opportunity for personal robots in the future. And if you look, my, my favorite movie robot movie is uh, something called Robot and Frank. I don't know if you've seen that or not. No, I have not. I want, no, it's oh, on my, my list. List. It's it, on my it's, list. It's a, it's a must-see. Now, obviously, with any robot movie, there's always hijinks involved and it gets a little crazy. But the, and the robot in Robot and Frank is a guy in a suit. So the robot itself isn't great, but the use case that's defined in uh, Robot and Frank in my opinion, that's where robots should be going. That's what we should be trying to solve. It's a robot that is designed to help people in their personal life. It's really, in, in the movie, it's centered on um, elderly care. But this concept of a robot being into, able to interact with the world, but interact to a human personally and understand what the human is going through and understand their emotion and being supportive, I think that's the secret of robotics. You know, we started off with robots cleaning floors and delivering goods in in factories, we're getting to the point where those robots will be able to have conversations and understand emotions. And that's the super exciting stuff for me. It's on my list to go watch. And I want to say that the only robot thing that I used to watch as a kid, and this was kind of tacky at the time, and it's super tacky now, is this, uh, I think it was Japanese robotics show called uh, Johnny Succo and the Giant Robot or something like that. It was was this giant robot. You could tell it was human inside there doing things, and it was funny. Cool. Hey, so now I really love Moxie. I really love what the message is uh, around that and what it could potentially do for, for my kid, and I want to get I want to get one of them. What would I do? Where where would I go? So you can go to you know the embodied.com website, uh, purchase directly from there. Uh, we only sell direct. We don't sell through any channels at the moment. Um, so that, that would be the, the way to contact us. And surprisingly, although we, we've designed this for children, we have quite a few, several hundred adult users that are using Moxie on a, on a, you know, a, a regular basis. We weren't really sure when we started looking at this what that adult population was, was about. Is, are these early tech adopters? Are they testing the technology? What was the problem they're trying to solve until they started contacting us? And again, we do have a lot of that. We also have some people that are really struggling with life. They're struggling with uh, loneliness. They're struggling with critical illnesses. We had one woman contact us that was in very bad shape and was looking at potentially assisted suicide. You know, she contacted us. She got a moxie. She talks to moxie on a daily basis. She's taken herself off that list and um, she's managing her illness now and communicating with moxie. But I think people don't recognize how dangerous loneliness is in the world and moxie and technology similar to moxie are coming out that that can help uh, deal with some of that fantastic fantastic 
Phil, this has been a fantastic conversation. Really enjoyed it, especially because I have a personal connect with robotics and where that industry is evolving too. So thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for the invite. I really uh, enjoyed it. Great conversations. I always like meeting uh, other uh, robot fans. Stay in touch. I'm happy to chat anytime. And definitely check out Robot and Frank. I will check out Robot and Frank. Thank you. This is There's a Device for That, and you can get a new episode every Tuesday. Please be sure to subscribe. There's a Device for That is brought to you by Esper, the industry's first and leading DevOps platform for device fleets. If you're interested in learning more about how Esper can help you better manage your device fleet, reach out. Go to esper.io or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at esperdev at E-S-P-E-R-D-E-V. Thank you for listening. I'll see you on the next episode of There's a Device for That.